Welcome to the Moneyball Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Glorickian. This series is all about the data-driven transformation of the healthcare and life sciences landscape. Each episode, we dive deep through one-on-one interviews with leaders in the new cost-conscious, value-based healthcare economy. We look at the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for the years to come. Okay, welcome to another edition of Moneyball Medicine. Today I have Niven Narayan, who is co-founder, president, and CEO of Berg, a Boston-based biopharma company driving the next generation of drugs and diagnostics by combining patient-driven biology and artificial intelligence to unravel actionable disease insight. He has overseen development of Berg's clinical stage assets and pipeline and forged strategic partners with industry, academia, and US and UK governments. Niven is most passionate about improving patient care and enabling increased access to innovative medicines to improve healthcare outcomes. Niven, welcome to uh, Moneyball Medicine Podcast. It's great to spend time together again. Hey, great to be on again, uh, uh, Harry. It's, uh, it's always good to catch up, and I think it's, it's such an important continuous dialogue you know, given how quickly technology is moving in healthcare. So, um, again, happy to be on. I had the pleasure of learning about Berg and, and uh, coming in and taking a look at your systems and, and uh, being brought up to speed on what you guys are doing uh, during the writing of Moneyball Medicine. But, but since then, you know, uh, and, and maybe for the people listening for the first time and who don't know the company, can you, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, this whole concept that you have of a artificial intelligence drug discovery model uh, engine and where we were back what what two plus years ago and where you are now yeah sure you know so the company was really founded on this the the philosophy that we we should at this point in in development this is this is about ten years back we took a good hard look of how could we use biology in a more fundamental sense to drive a greater understanding of diseases, but importantly, how are diseases different than 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 a, a healthy, a, an otherwise healthy individual or a healthy cell or a healthy tissue? And the approach that we took at that time was really to combine a systems biology architecture with uh, a combination of a patient's uh, demographic data, their clinical outcome data, and then we wanted to look at a novel way of how do we analyze this data because obviously this is in the late 2000s, um, uh, um, you know, early early 2010s. And uh, our, our decision at that point was to, to take an agnostic approach, to not bias ourselves by what was known already. So looking, for example, at, you know, um, GWAS studies and, and, and uh, the the, the, the the known or traditional pathways. And our approach is really to bring a new data topology, a new data ecosystem together where one could look at genes and proteins and, and demographics and, and a patient's clinical story overall and then feed this data uh, architecture into a Bayesian artificial intelligence system. And this Bayesian AI system is really well positioned to analyze this type of data because what we're trying to get at is not just a correlation. So a lot of analytical methods look at 
um, how A is correlated to B and how that correlation may, you know, may predict a, a greater depth of understanding. But what, what we're really after is how do we understand the elements within a patient's biology to link a causal um, inference between a mutation of a certain gene or uh, a, a, um, a dysregulated expression profile of a protein in a given pathway, and then using that as a as a, a pivot to correlate that to you know, wow, this is what is what could be responsible for the onset of prostate cancer or Parkinson's disease or why certain individuals don't respond to certain drugs. So this entire you know this whole approach. Um, was really was really novel at that time in the sense that we related we were allowing the data to guide us to the hypotheses instead of you know the traditional sense of, of taking hypotheses and uh, and going through a, a lot of, of data generation processes so since we've last uh, had you know such a forum about two years ago we've advanced significantly on our pancreatic cancer drug which was then, uh, we were we were still wrapping up our, our our phase one solid tumor approach, and you know since then we've we've now um, embarked uh, into a, a phase two pancreatic uh, trial. That trial is is really a precision oncology trial. So we're we're collecting tissues and samples and um, you know blood, urine, etc. on these patients. We're able to build uh, a biological profile on these patients. We're able then to map that profile against whether or not the patient has a response or not. And that's really important because that then allows us to truly engage with patient stratification modules or so as we go into late uh, stage registrational and pivotal trials, we would then be able to create, you know, protocols where uh, we can engage companion diagnostics or engage a molecular profile analysis before um, allowing a patient to come into the trial. So it allows us to be more precise, allows for more predictive, you know, modeling in the drug development process. But I, you know, something I care about, it also allows us for patients who are at the end stage of their lives to, for us to conduct more ethical clinical trials. Because if we know that our drug's probably not going to work for that patient, it's it's in the best interest of both parties to not offer that patient that, um, uh, that drug. So in pancreatic cancer, we've made significant strides both on the, um, the the drug development and the diagnostic uh, component, we've advanced a really exciting technology in epidermolysis bullosa. Uh, we're in the the end stages of wrapping up a phase one trial down at the University of Miami, and we're now in the planning stages of a phase three registrational trial in in that uh, in that indication, which is a rare uh, a childhood disease um, of of uh, um, of the skin it really creates a lot of of blistering and and postules and impaired wound healing so an extremely deleterious disease to the skin and otherwise the psychosocial effects in kids um on that on that realm also for the psychosocial component we have a drug that's that's now in the phase three planning phases for chemotherapy induced alopecia we've just wrapped up the trial at uh early in the year at cedar sinai and memorial sloan kettering that asset is it's it, it really is going to seek to fill an unmet need uh, in cancer where um, for most of almost 60 percent of chemotherapies induce alopecia which is hair loss and that really gives the patient a stark 
awareness, a stark, acute uh, reminder that they have cancer. They can feel it. They can see it. And that psychosocial component, I think, is so important. So advancing this, 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 cl- this clinical asset into an NDA-enabling trial, we're, we're extremely excited about that. So really, you know, late-stage uh, um, uh, plans for these three assets in pancreatic, al- uh, in pancreatic cancer, chemotherapy-induced alopecia, and EB. And then on the heels of the, of the clinical development, we then also have uh, made you know, pretty significant progress on our pipeline. So we have two more second-generation cancer drugs in development that are now marching towards uh, IND-enabling trials. We uh, have a really exciting uh, a novel drug target for, for LARC2 muta- uh, mutated uh, Parkinson's uh, disease, and we've now seen from a recent publication that came out of, of about a month ago that um, some of the, uh, these mutations may behave like the idiopathic kind in other parts of, of, of Parkinson's. So the company has made strides, uh, you know, clinically but also developmentally in cancer and neurological diseases. And uh, so really this platform, which is interrogative biology, has really helped to fuel and guide late-stage developments uh, in, the, in our, our clinical assets, reposition, I'm sorry, reposition some of the, uh, the, the known assets and then really fuel a de novo uh, pipeline of drugs. Tell me, with the platform and, and this approach of using artificial intelligence um, and your Bayesian AI system basically, is, is, is the, does it shorten the timeline? Does it uh, identify new pathways? Do you, can you do it with a lower, you know, with a, with lower number of people for lower cost? What, what are all the, why do it this way? What are the benefits of this? Yeah, so if I, I'll, I'll answer your question in a three-pronged sense, Harry. One, philosophically and scientifically, I think doing it this way allows us to not throw away the data that doesn't you know, necessarily satisfy a statistical significance or alpha. I don't think disease I don't, it, you know, cares about what, what, what satisfies uh, a statistical significance. Uh, our traditional ways of looking at data, we only, you know, we for for the most part include uh, the data that that, that satisfies this this uh, this point oh five significance. But there are lots of data in in, uh, and I think the point I'm trying to make is that disease is not very neat. It's very complex. It's very messy. And when you look at it from a mathematical and a statistical perspective, we have to allow all of the 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 correlations and all of the um, implications of that data to have a voice and so this approach allows but you know by taking a Bayesian uh, AI approach which there are really no cutoffs there's no preconceived hypotheses to say well we're gonna just have a cutoff of uh, 80% of the data or 60% of the data we feel all we feed all of the data into the system um, clinically it's important because we're putting, literally, when, you know, big hot top, uh, a hot button term is, is patient-centric. What does that really mean? You know, how do you really define that? And I think for Berg, it's, it's being a patient-centric by starting the process of drug development with human tissue samples, learning as much as we can about the clinical records, learning as much as we can about 
the components of the bi- of the biology within those samples and allowing the math to give power give rise to that biology so it can teach us more about what's going on in the medicine so dynamically we learn about the disease much more fundamentally scientifically we take a much more broad unbiased approach clinically we're allowing for more fundamental insight into what's going on into disease and then when you add on the business perspective of it you know because you're you're learning more about the disease and the patient profile that you're studying you're probably going to you know produce drugs that are, are much more predictive towards a given population which which really is defining and, and exemplifying what precision medicine is from a pure business operational excellence perspective we don't need a thousand people to to discover a drug we don't need five to seven years and the average 150 million according to the Damasi uh, the, you know the recent Damasi numbers we're able to really drive lean uh, operationally efficient discovery programs because it's it's very data heavy it's very technologically heavy and uh, you know our scientists or um, our operators that, that are on every disease or every target they're able to really dynamically interact with this data in a sense where they can um, can you know can see it and touch it and feel it in a way that it allows that data to really come to life so we're able to of course spend a lot less money on a traditional discovery program we are reducing the trial and error we're allowing the data to guide us uh, to where we need to focus in on and then very quickly the discovery teams you know work with development teams to determine what is the the best platform a development platform to put this in should it be uh, you know an, um, a protein based drug is it a biologic should we look at uh, um, you know RNAi or, or CRISPR based technologies should we uh, you know, look at a small small molecule screen very quickly. So, all of this is done in a modular sense very quickly, uh, and I think that's just been a huge advantage to how efficient, predictive, and cost effective we can get from a pure concept to a validated drug target or a validated diagnostic. So, if you were to put some sort of rough percentage increases or time savings or people savings like what what would you sort of give it a rough estimate of compared to the traditional model yeah so i'm just going to use really generic you know numbers and i'm going to just use the vc model so the average series a in the vc is in you know from a vc back company from concept to proof of to to proof of principle you know let's say a proof of principle to the ind average is about 20 to to 25 million and that takes about two to three years. Berg's able to, to cut that in, in, in more than half and, and, and build a model from concept to a validated disease target or a validated you know, diagnostic in, a, in about six to nine months. So that's even more than 50%. And that's just using a VC model as, uh, you know, as a denominator or a predicate. Some may say that's an unfair model to to use. If I I can use an academic model, which of course the numbers are lower, but the time is 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 longer. So the two levers are time and cost. If we use a big pharma model, the infrastructure is bigger, the cost is bigger because of a measure of that infrastructure, the the cost is higher, but the time doesn't change that much. So 
you know, when you look at the the, the lean and, 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 and the rapidity of uh, the lean nature of what we're doing and the rapidity to the, the, the validation, it is a uh, it's a stark contrast from what's our traditional senses. And even with the advent of technologies over the past three to five years, because to our listeners, you know, some may say, well, geez, hey, you know, biology has come a long way and it has. Emerging technologies have enabled, like CRISPR-Cas-Base 9 and XRD, have enabled more rapidity and innovation. That's true. But we still have to then validate all those models as a measure of what uh, these these validated phenotypes are. Because at the end of the day, these discoveries have to then go into a funnel of either creating an IND to, to do first-in-man trials, reposition an asset, whether that's a phase two or phase three, or a, or a diagnostic asset where we we now have to go back into retrospective or clinical uh, perspective trials to validate this this biomarker uh, in a patient population. So the way that we're going to validate this is 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 not changed. It's still the clinical trials. How do we either make the clinical trial more predictive, more lean and effective, or how do we get as much information up front? So we know we're triaging the biology against the disease phenotype, the population against the, the, the outcome, the, the proposed and desired disease outcome, and then the market size relative to my upfront investment and cost. So it's a, it's, you know, I think these methodologies allow also, I think, Harry, you know, one of the, the, the points I've appreciated over the past couple of years it allows companies like Berg to go into diseases that are ultra rare or rare um, with a higher degree of confidence, you know, knowing that these methodologies allow us to get to a go no go, a go or no go decision much quicker. So, in diseases like EB or other rare diseases, um, that triage process allows us to study these types of diseases, where in, in other cases, it's, uh, you know, the investment is a risk. From what I'm hearing from you, do, do you believe that this sort of technology trend, and you and I have seen many come and go over time, this fundamental approach of utilizing machine learning and AI for drug discovery is going to be how things are done in the future? I think absolutely. I think what's going to uh, calibrate and position how AI machine learning is going to be used most effectively is outcome until we don't develop the first drug to be guided or the first drug to be developed with AI either is a reposition drug which is you know like our, our BPM 31510 or a de novo development that's just, just, just flat out a protein or a small molecule that has come out of a machine learning or an AI system that then is the world's first uh, pivot to development. Berg is, is I think if I'm not mistaken, has uh, validated the world's first uh, clinical diagnostics in, in prostate cancer. So we worked with the Department of Defense to just, you know, literally from, from ground zero to take the health records and the biological records, you know, predict that we, we have found some markers that show the separation between benign prostate hypertrophy and prostate cancer you know, uh, less aggressive versus more aggressive prostate cancers. We validate this is now in retrospective perspective trials in over 1,500 patients. So this really shows that this process can work. 
I think that if we if we take a step back and think about the journey of the drug the, the drug developer, the physician and the patient, how is this technology going to help each stakeholder? And what is the pathway to commercialization governed by? And it's governed by payers and regulators. So I have seen firsthand, I think all of us should be able to widely accept that the FDA, other regulatory agencies have made leaps and bounds of trying their best to try to understand these technologies, keep up with them, engage workshops, engage these conversations to say, okay, how do they really work? What changes do we have to make? What do we need to, to uh, teach within the agency uh, this new awareness of how we review or review process works? Scott Gottlieb has just, he, he's, you know, he's amazed me because he's a physician, but he's just, he's, I think he's demonstrated in a really short time that he's not going to allow yesterday's biases to carry over into, into tomorrow's uh, approval process. And um, the payers, payers are paying and making investments in, in technological companies uh, to really try to figure out, okay, if this is really true, how do you help me make my process more efficient? Because right now, approximately, I'm spending about 60 to 80% of, of my reimbursement monies on t approximately 20% of those who are covered. So when you look at the pressure points within the system, which the, t the two pressure points of the levers are, how do we engage the regulators to help us get these, these products approved? Because if the products are, are not approved, this is just a bunch of fancy science. Sounds harsh, but it's, it's true. Uh, and if the payers are not going to pay for it, then you can still get a drug or a technology approved. What's going to be adoption and implementation? So those two big levers have made such tremendous leaps and bounds in the past three years that it allows folks like me, folks like, uh, um, you, know, you know, companies like Berg's, to really have a lens of hope that the investment in the technology and the investment in the time, the investment in these types of approaches, if you can can create the right products that show that you're sa it's safe, it's validated, you have a process of, of showing that these, the, these diagnostics or these drugs really are going to create a step change. Unlike five years ago, Harry, if you remember the conversations at the conferences, there were whole sections of conferences that dealt with, well, how is the FDA going to look at it? How are regulators going to look at it? Are payers going to understand it? You don't see those tracks at conferences anymore. You see FDA representatives or, or representatives from payers speak on panels right next to, to CEOs, right next to leading scientists or clinicians. The conversation is here. I think the future is really exciting. I think we need to continuously educate each other. We need to, uh, I don't think we're all speaking different languages anymore. I think we've actually found uh, um, a, a language of machine learning and AI. I think what we really need to do is now, you know, bring together a lens and a concentration around how do we all together 
advance these technologies as safely, as quickly, uh, as responsibly and ethically as possible. Because the next generation of healthcare is absolutely going to be based on using mathematics, using machine learning, analytical methods, uh, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, uh, augmented reality, to uh, you, you know to allow the patient story to be told in a way that allows uh, drug developers to create drugs that we can't even imagine today. So, so there, I would say, let let me challenge you on that. So, I'm not not challenge the payer or the the regulator they're always struggling to keep up with everything that we're doing but you know we're going to create a new company using machine learning ai and so forth the hardware is advancing at unprecedented rates right the software is improving every time you turn around um so what a what a what do we need to do to, I mean, totally different set of employees in my mind, mm-hmm. right? Um, and a hybrid. I need somebody who understands the biology, and then I need somebody that can actually write the code. Yeah. Um, and then I need that upgradable on a regular basis, because otherwise, if NVIDIA's new chip is 10 times more powerful than the last chipset, Will the guy who comes after me leave me in the dust because his processing capability is that much better, that much faster? Uh, now I know the fundamental data is what drives these systems, but you know I, I, I'm just where do we need to be? What do we need to be doing from a implementation, hiring perspective, capabilities perspective in your mind? I remember when I interviewed you the last time, you said, you know, at one point we needed to go back and rewrite some of the stuff we were working on because we got some new blood that came in and showed us a new way to, to, to look at it. So how, how, do you, how do you balance those things for companies that are coming up that want to be the next Berg? I think you have to take, look, we've, we've made our uh, um, very healthy share of mistakes along the way. Um, it's not, as you can imagine, not been an easy road in anything. It's never an easy road, but it's never an easy road when it's uncharted, innovative, uh, you know, territory. So if you just take, I think the only analogy I can think of in my mind to, when you think of the future, is you take a piece of paper and a pencil, and a piece of paper and a pencil makes a note. Now you upgrade that, and there's a typewriter. You upgrade a typewriter, you got Microsoft Word. You upgrade Microsoft Word, and you have uh, these technologies and machine learning that, that uh, has a speech recognition uh, capabilities. We've just gone through four platforms of simply writing. And that's just, just simply writing, just putting a word down to a recording, a recorded piece of instrument. And that instrument went from a paper to a typewriter to a software to now an augmented software and it but it, it it empirically has changed and has been altered over time because it started out with the hands and the eyes and the brain but then we added in the mouth at the end now now it's speech recognition is it's using 
you know language in a, in in a different way it's 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 combining more empirical components that's exactly what we're doing in biology because we started out you know looking at you know at, at individual genes we looked at gels we looked at you know animal models now there's ai and machine learning and how is it all going to going to keep up is is i would submit to you on your challenge that it it is it's not going to be easy but what i would also you know balance that 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 recognition of that challenge is that unlike where there were only there was only a few companies uh you know who would create word processors uh um you know whether it was it was it was word or 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 other processors um there's so many companies the, the the critical mass of individuals and entities that are dealing with the issues whether it's software or hardware or education uh and i and i don't and i should really emphasize the educational component because i think i was a uh, it was a, a nature commentary a few months back where i said the phd programs of the future they can't be just you know i think the days of just getting a phd in computer science or a phd in molecular biology the individuals who are going to make the biggest change in the future the individuals who really know math and biology or know cs and biology or know cs and medicine but it's going to be a hybrid system i agree it's going to be biology plus or it's going to be math plus and that's really what the employee of the future is going to be most successful and i think that uh, um is going to take i mean i think we're aware because we're having a conversation so that's you know check the box on that i i'm not sure it's everybody that's having that conversation <laughs> that's fair but uh the educational process has to change i think you're seeing i mean unfortunately right now it's it's you know, I, I name kind of the same names, and they're they're really the leading institutions. The, you know, Stanford, Columbia, Oxford, Harvard, you know, Carnegie Mellon, et cetera. There, there, there are many others, but we we still have not met that mass, you know, critical educational sea change that is bringing together this hybrid, this this fusion of of technology, if you will. So I think that's one extremely important component. Um, but having said that, I, I don't. I don't think it's we're we're outdoing Moore's law in so many ways. We've outdone it in software. We're outdoing it in hardware for sure. And I think on the educational component, since the forums and platforms and the access entry points to education have been completely revolutionized because of things like the Khan Academy, because of you know things like AI. So, you know some of the, the the platforms that the the Gates the Gates Foundation and others, um, and and there are many others. Those are just you know some of the ones that come to mind very quickly. But you need not go to a classroom anymore to learn. You need not be 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 a part of a formal community anymore to learn. You literally can learn off of uh, a, a computer-based uh, interchange. Now the practical components of that have to be played out. You know, uh, you know, obviously within the community, but I think since that's changed so much, Harry, uh, the the point of bringing this together, the enhancements, the corrections, the course, the course changes, or the course corrections that are going to be inevitable, I think are going to happen much quicker in the next few years than they would have happened uh, ten years ago. So, I I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit more hopeful that folks being able to learn from the mistakes 
uh, the, the the mistakes, you know, frankly, that the, the companies like Berg has made uh, and others, which I think we need to be very uh, transparent, open, and frank about things that we've done well, uh, things we haven't done well. You know, one of them, I think, one of the big mistakes we uh, performed early on is we were so tunnel vision into the technology that we didn't bring in some of the endpoint stakeholders. I think we brought them in a bit too late if we had brought them in earlier, like some some senior members of the pharma societies, some, uh, you know, you know, doing a partnership with pharma earlier, um, you know, speaking to payers earlier, engaging folks like, you know, like Medicare or, um, you know, the NHS or, you know, providers help us really understand what really matters how do we develop technologies in a much a much broader sense i think we would have potentially you know gotten there faster or had more robust data but having said that it was a first you know we were doing things for the first time and uh you know looking back on the 10 years um i think what's going to help the next 10 years be more effective for our company and for many other companies and groups is that we have to have these conversations and share. It's a, it's so important to share what we all think is the right thing to do. It is going to be even more important to share what we think is not the right thing to do or, frankly, just a wrong thing to do. And I think we have a moral responsibility to speak up more about that. It's like, you know, people don't like to publish bad data. Well, we need to start to talk about bad processes. Or wrong processes because it just is going to help. It's going to help the community get there faster. And of course, there's there's competitive intelligence, and you know companies are competing against each other. But in the, if you take the long view, you're only helping yourself because if you if the payers and the providers and the, the regulators they get it uh, more effectively and they get it uh, in a, a less you know time frame, it helps everyone that's charging forward in that same direction um, it helps the entire critical uh, community so I think that's the way we need to look at it well if you look at technology companies right they they come up with standards they all the AI research is being published by yeah. all the players um, and they're competing more on the data that they have that's proprietary to them but not the not the algorithm not the code that's that's reproducible yes. so it, it's that's that's not the necessarily the, the protectable asset no no I think the algorithms are I mean, there, <clears throat> there are many companies and groups uh, who are just frankly using, you know, open source software and sharing their software. You have great academic groups like Atul Butte's uh, group at UCSF, Eric Shad at Mount Sinai, Andrea Califano, Chaz Boontra at Oxford. They, I mean, these guys literally share all their data and they're very open about how they do processes. And I think it's, uh, those are four names that I admire because they 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 uh it it's showing that the you know intellectual property is really important you know you know patents help to preserve your any your inalienable right for a defined period of time to to sell a product and that's really important for commerce but in in order to move the, the needle significantly and create a sea change in innovation. Um, I think there's a key, a key difference between the innovations that's necessary to make big steps and big changes towards the scientific discoveries 
Because that alone, if everyone can share and get that part of it right, then now it's incumbent on a company or a group to then innovate how to how do they create novel products that are protectable around that. And those are two really those those are two different layers of innovation. They they oftentimes get lumped together and that's where a lot of issues and problems come out. But if we can understand that, you know, this is really a, a multi-layered process of innovation where it's it's like a pyramid and at the bottom everyone's got to play well together and be open and be transparent and that allows us all to be better and then out of that funnel of that initial baseline of innovation now it's incumbent on individual groups to productize when you productize now of course you can have IP and patents around that that's really important because otherwise where's the uh, incentive um, and then on the top layer above that is then the commercial and the reimbursement and the proliferation of the business models that actually have a repetitive and a a, con, um, a sustainable model of uh, of revenue to fuel the ongoing second, third, fourth generation uh, products of of that initial innovation. And if we could think about it in those layers, I think um, you know we can make a hell of a lot more progress. So on that note. Um I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast and uh, look forward to future interactions and hear more updates on Berg and where it's going and how you're changing outcomes for patients um, and driving technology forward. So thank you very much for spending the time today. Well, thank you, Harry. And I know in, in closing, I'd just like to say I think you have done a fantastic job of allowing the voices, you know, multiple voices to be heard because I think that that's really important um, I know every time we talk or every time uh, you make an introduction to someone else, I always get a different lens. And that's really important for me as, uh, uh, as, a, as a scientist, as a CEO, as a human being. Um, uh, so, so really, I think the, your podcast and, you know, obviously your books that, that you put out and the narrative that you are helping to create within this industry for all of us, um, I think it's really unique because you're touching CEOs, you're touching senior academicians, you know, peers, you know, folks from government, and you're bringing that conversation together. So I think this is a really, really cool outlet um, to make us really think about, about what we're doing so we can be better at it. So thank you, Harry. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode. Join me for the next episode where I speak to Jason Bond, co-founder and chief medical officer of Prognos AI on how AI and machine learning is being used to dig into multi-sourced clinical diagnostic data across 16 billion records for 185 million patients to improve health by predicting disease early. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, Farewell.